Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And then there were four. Australia's World Cup defence is officially over after being knocked out of the T20 World Cup at the hands of England and New Zealand. India and Pakistan have also progressed to the semi-finals. And on this edition of the Unplayable podcast, we're going to be checking out just what went wrong for Australia and what might be next in their T20 pursuits. I'm Josh Shonafinger and I'm joined, as always, by Louis Cameron. Louis, you've been following the Aussies around the country. So what happened yeah, good question. It's probably what what Australia are asking themselves at the moment. I mean, they they end up with three wins, a washout, and a loss, um, and they kind of look over at the other group and Pakistan qualify um, after an amazing day yesterday, wasn't it? That um, you know that Netherlands win over South Africa is one no one saw coming, and and in the end, Pakistan get through. You know, having having a worse um, a worse record than Australia uh, in, in a really in a really kind of perverse. Um, perverse way of things finishing up. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Australia really have no one to blame but themselves, I think, um, and, I, and I think they would they would agree with that and we'll probably delve into some of the reasons why it didn't quite click for them at this tournament. But, um, yeah, it would be, it would be a, an interesting feeling for them because they finished that game uh, against Afghanistan on, on Friday night still thinking that they might be in with a chance, right? Well, that's right. Let's talk about that game at the Adelaide Oval. Australia made eight for 168. It was uh, Mitch Marsh was 45 and Glenn Maxwell was 54, doing most of the damage for the Aussies. But then Afghanistan, after falling to six for 103 in reply and looking like they were out of the contest, it was the Adelaide Oval fan favourite Rashid Khan with 48 not out who nearly dragged the visitors over the line in what would have been a pretty special finish. However, Australia got the points, but not the net run rate boost that they needed. And England were able to knock off Sri Lanka the following day to clinch qualification. Yeah, I mean, it was a familiar story, wasn't it, for the Australians in terms of a similar kind of game to the Ireland one where they felt like maybe they could have clinched a, a bigger victory, a, a, a victory that might have lifted their net run rate a little bit and, and allowed them to, to progress even despite England beating Sri Lanka the next day. But, you know, lower lower end run, tail end runs. It was Lorcan Tucker for Ireland and it was Rashid Khan for, for Afghanistan who, who kind of who kind of sunk the Aussies in, in that regard. I think that, you know, one of the lessons that we're getting is that these teams, the, the lower-ranked teams, I was going to say associate teams, but neither Ireland nor, Af- I mean, nor Afghanistan are, are associates anymore. They're, they're full member nations and um, that should be a good indicator. These guys are, are, are very, very good teams and you, you might have been able to go into games, you know, six, seven years ago thinking that you could blow them off the park um, and you know Australia could have could have potentially done that against Ireland if they'd held their catches, but I don't think you can really bank on it. I, I think you've you've just got to accept that. Yep, Australia should be beating these teams, but they're by no means easy beats. So um, they would have they would have hated that it, it had to kind of come down to to huge wins over those guys to to make it possible. I personally think things went wrong a, a little bit earlier than that, but um, yeah, maybe we'll um, we'll touch on that 
you know, in the in the coming minutes, yeah. Well, yeah, it was the opening game of the season or of the tournament, sorry, where they absolutely thrashed by New Zealand. And we spoke about it after that game that maybe the net run rate was also going to become a factor even at that early point. They were bowled out in 17.1 overs. Should they have batted out the 20 and scrounged as many extra runs as they could have? In the end, maybe that wouldn't have made a massive difference. But, yeah, it was just starting off the tournament on the wrong foot, wasn't it? And in the end, it, it killed them. Yeah, it did. And it was interesting that neither of us really were 100% clear on how the net run rate worked after that first game. You'd like to think the Australians were. Um, and, yeah, you'd, you'd definitely look at that in terms of the the tail could have made a few extra runs. It probably wouldn't have made a, a big a big difference. Like you can, you can end up looking at this tournament in two ways, either that they should have been more clinical against Ireland and Afghanistan and recorded big wins. Personally, as I said before, I don't really think that was ever – um, something that they should have been banking on. Um, they lost it in the New Zealand game, fair and square, in the in the power plays of, of the respective innings. I mean, the way Finn Allen destroyed Australia and then Devin Conway went on with it in those games was um, it effectively and ended Australia's tournament. Um, and then, you know, to, to try and chase 190-200 as they were in that game, um, they were just on the back foot from from ball one. I, I think I think ultimately when you when you put it all together, it, the bowling is is probably was probably the bigger issue in terms of um, you know the, I think the batting there was just enough you know they made good scores against um, all the teams except for New Zealand and and you know they had a reasonable case to suggest that they were going up against a higher than par total so you might give them a bit of an out for that so. I think the bowling is probably the bit where they'd, they'd identify some, some areas to for improvement. Well, that's an interesting point. So Mitchell Stark was left out of the 11 for that final match in, in favour of Kane Richardson. Um, it, what does that say for Mitchell Stark's form? I mean, his tournament wasn't outstanding by his high standards. Mind you, he, would, he was playing a different role, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And I think, I think ultimately Stark and, and probably Pat Cummins are – are at crossroads in their careers in, in T20 cricket, um, I think. I mean, Cummins, his death bowling numbers we've we probably raised before were probably a, a bit of a concern for Australia coming into this tournament and that there was an argument there that Kane Richardson and and, and even Nathan Ellis are probably, um, you know, just on, on numbers alone are actually better death bowlers right at the moment. The thing Cummins, um, you know, and, and Hazelwood and Stark had to fall back on was this was a tournament for new ball bowlers and new ball swing bowlers and people who could shift it off the straight. And Cummins isn't you know, a traditional new ball bowler, but he is, you know, an excellent, um, you know, just a, an excellent test, you know, hard length kind of bowler. So I think all three of them would be asking why they haven't been able to get the kind of movement and trouble battles um, in the power play like other teams have. So that's a problem for all three of those fast bowlers. Um and uh, when I say, you know, he's at a crossroads, I mean, he's got a lot on his plate. He's the the test captain. He's now the ODI captain. He plays in the IPL. Um, international T20 cricket, on top of that, is a lot. Um, and it's, it, you can't just kind of roll roll out the same stuff as you, you do in, in test and one-day cricket anymore. T20 is, is, um, is a highly specialised format of the game. Uh, so by no means would, would anyone be writing him off, but I, I think, he, you know, that he'd, you know, they'd all need to have a real look at, you know, the time they're putting into into T20 cricket. With Stark, it, it's a bit of an opposite issue in terms of his new ball numbers. What 
so I think death bowling is less of a concern with him. I think, you know, hitting his Yorkers and even um, the way he can strike through the middle overs now uh, are a positive. Um, but the, the new ball stuff is, is where he's not quite nailing it like he was in the past. I mean, he used to be the, the new ball king, right? You think about the first ball of, of the Ashes last year, the, the first ball of the 2015 World Cup final. Um, he's The numbers just suggest that he's not making the same impact in the power play. So um, that's that's another one for him where his test career is going going beautifully at the moment. And, and ODI cricket, he's one of the best um ODI bowlers Australia's ever had. So, again, for him, it's, it's uh, you know, where does T20 fit into that? And for Australia's selectors, how do they manage these, um, those two fast bowlers in particular who are, who are now getting to, to 30 years old? Um, you know, what's, what's best for them going forward? Uh, on that, I think Hazelwood and Zampa, I think, I think they're, um, they're locks for me. You look forward to the next, the next World Cup. I think, um, what you get from Hazelwood as an all-round package is is excellent. I think he's the, the the leader of this attack now. It's amazing that they're in that position. Um, and Adam Zampa, likewise, I think is an excellent T Twenty bowler. So, um, yeah, potentially some some interesting conversations to be had around around the other fast bowling spots. Probably also another source of disappointment for the Aussies is that you know pace bowling is considered their strength, and the other quicks around the tournament have had really good tournaments and. Perhaps the Aussie mm. quicks didn't have as big impact as they probably would have expected. Now, just before I forget, uh, who, someone who was a great T20 bowler was Shane Watson. You're hopefully going to be chatting to him straight after this chat, so looking forward to that. Uh, I do want to just talk about the semifinals, though, that are coming up. It's New Zealand and Pakistan at the SCG on November 9, and India and England at the Adelaide Oval on November 10. Lou, if you had to put your hat in the ring and tell us who's going to claim it from here, who would you be leading towards? I think India will win the game against England. I think they've been the standout team for me in this tournament. Um, I mean, South Africa were the the ones until they lost to the Netherlands. I really thought that we were we were potentially looking at an India South Africa final, but. Um, Inexplicable is is all I can say of of another white ball major tournament collapse for, for South Africa when the when the heat was on. Pakistan, New Zealand. That, I mean, you'd say on form, New Zealand should be should be winning that. They've had the better tournament. Pakistan have only just snuck in. The thing that you can always that can always you know win you any game of cricket is excellent bowling though. And Pakistan arguably have the best bowling attack at at this tournament, particularly in the in the pace bowling stock. So certainly wouldn't write them off. If I was, if I had to guess, I'd say India, New Zealand final at the MCG. Um, and I, I, I just think India are the most, um, the most well-balanced team and, and the, the team that have exploited the conditions the best. I mean, even watching them again last night, um, the way Ashdeep Singh and Bhuvneshwar Kumar are swinging the ball, um, fantastic adjusting to conditions. It's, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting World Cup in that regard. Last time we chatted, you hinted that maybe the kookaburras are swinging more this tournament. Have you delved any deeper into that philosophy? No, I haven't. But, I mean, it, it seems like it's it's certain grounds that it seems to be happening more at. I mean, Australia are unfortunate in terms of they didn't get to play at the MCG uh, where where it seems to be swinging heaps every time India play there. Um, yeah, got nothing nothing more to back up whether whether that's a, a real thing or not around the around the kookaburras, but... Um, 
you know, anecdotal or just, you know, watching, it, it just seems like um, it's it's swinging and seeming a lot more. Although you, you'd probably say Australia didn't didn't really get a, a whole heap of it in, in their games, which, um, you know, maybe that's conditions thing. Um, maybe it's a bowler thing. I'm not sure. Mm, certainly not compared to the other teams. Now, if you mentioned earlier that the next T20 World Cup, that'll be in 2024, held jointly by the West Indies and the USA of all places. Uh, and you reckon uh, Josh Hazelwood and Adam Zampa are going to be there. You've also done a bit of preparation for this segment. You're going to run us through who you think will be lining up for Australia in two years' time. Why don't you just run us through from top to bottom and then we can have a bit of a chat about who's made your team. Okay, I've had a I've had a bit of a crack at a at an eleven, and then an extra four players uh, to be in the squad. There might be a few like slashes and asterisks, so bear with me as I go through it. <laughs> Opening the batting, I think Cameron Green is probably given first crack after the, some of the promising signs we've seen from him. Um, I've got David uh, David Warner asterisks in there. He he will be I think thirty eight, thirty seven, or thirty eight by the time the next okay. tournament comes around. Um, so, you know, odds would say that might be a bridge too far. Um, if if that is the case, I think I think they need a left-hander. And one of the issues, I think, with um, uh, with T- Australian T20 cricket at the moment is there's not a whole heap of left-handed batters uh, pushing their case, particularly in the middle order. Um, so I've got Darcy Short or Travis Head uh, in that opening spot next to Green. Uh, and then the middle order is is pretty similar to what it looks like now. I've got Marsh, Maxwell, Stoinis, David, uh, and I've just slotted Inglis in there instead of Matt Wade, who I think, you know, I think he probably, you know, he said that this World Cup would probably be his last and I think that'll that'll probably be the case. So Inglis, I think, sl- slops in at um, maybe four or five there, can kind of um, balance things out, and that can push David right down to seven if required. And then my bowlers, mm-hmm. I've got Hazelwood and Zampa. Um, I haven't picked Stark or Cummins. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not writing them off, but I'm, I'm suggesting that if they, they look elsewhere that you might end up with Daniel Sams at number eight as a really good lower order hitter. And it kind of replaces what, what Cummins been able to do is his batting in T20 cricket, I think, is um, is a real positive. So I think Sams can cover some of that. And I think his bowling as a left armour can um, potentially replace a bit of what they're losing from Mitchell Stark. Uh, and then Nathan Ellis, for me, is the is the death bowler in that team. Um, his his numbers are, are getting better and better, and he seems to be, uh, you know, a, a better case for international cricket every time he plays in it. Uh, the... The reserves I've got are Agar, and he'd probably he'd probably play some some games alongside Zampa, um, depending on pitches in the US and the West Indies. Uh, I've got Riley Meredith in there, but there's there's a whole bunch of different pace bowlers that they could look at for that spot. Uh, Felipe or McDermott is my backup top order batter slash wicketkeeper. Okay, you don't you don't want to make a call on. Yeah, okay, so if I had to if I had to pick, I'd probably go Felipe. I just think he's a, a touch more versatile, and he probably wicket keeps a bit more often. Um, so that'd be my backup keeper bat. Uh, and then in terms of a spinner, I'd thought about Tanvir Sanger, Mitch Swepson, and Peter Hatsaglu for this spot. Um, I'm going to go with Tanvir Sanger. I just think the the um, I'm not picking it on on current current form i'm picking on where guys could be in in two years time and i think sanger could potentially make that leap so that's an early crack at a at a 15 what do you reckon 
I don't mind that at all, actually. I mean, a lot might come down to what the pitchers in the US uh, are going to do. I mean, we don't have much mm-hmm. data to suggest what they're going to roll out over there, do they? But Tanvir Sang is a great shout. I love him. He's still very young and spent some time around the Aussie squad when they went to New Zealand in 2021. So definitely he's on the radar of the selectors. Interesting, though, that the middle order, yeah, as you said, remains pretty much the same. And I'm sure Andrew McDonald won't be making wholesale changes to this squad, but there might be a, rec- a recommendation or a suggestion that, you know, if this team that hasn't made the semis, should there be, you know, more than just a handful of, of differences that you've pointed out there? Yeah, I don't think – it's an interesting spot for the Aussie team because I don't think the middle-order batting is necessarily um, a major issue. I think at times Stoinis has, has looked really dangerous. Maxwell was fantastic in that last game against Afghanistan and – really rescued Australia. I think Tim David um, it didn't didn't really see the best of him and, and probably didn't get the chance to to see the best of him. He had a hamstring issue that ruled him out of the last game. I think he's going to be an excellent T20 player for Australia um, and the sample size on him is, is just too small at the moment. And I think Inglis, his signs as a, as a guy who can hit to different areas, um, not an out-and-out power hitter, although he does have a, a bit of that. He's, a, he's an interesting counterpoint, I think, to those other... Um, those other three guys and Mitch Marsh. Um, and particularly when you look at it and there's no lefties in that middle order. Um, and I think having someone like Inglis and also Maxwell who can reverse reverse sweep and switch hit, um, they're crucial in terms of being able to make up for the, for the um, kind of headache that having left-handers uh, can present to, to bowling captains. So I'm not too worried about the middle order. I think it's 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 funny. It's actually the the opening spots they need to think about and the bowling, which is well, fast bowling, which are traditionally the two bits of Australia's T20 side where they haven't had to worry that much about in the past. The left-handers is a really interesting point, isn't it? Because now we just sort of assume that you have to have the right-left combination. But as you pointed out off there earlier, India are flying at the minute and their whole top seven, hmm. Rishabh Pant aside when he plays, is right-handers. So maybe it's not necessarily as big a factor as maybe we assume it is? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you can't pick lesser players because they're left-handers, um, you know, in the middle order just for the sake of it. Yeah, India's a great example. You look at, um, I mean, Surya Kumar Yadav. I mean, he's a he's a left-hander, right-hander, all roll into one, just the the ability to, to – um, and when I say that, I mean he um, – he can hit the ball to all parts of the ground. And I think that's the thing with left-handers is um, it, it becomes more difficult for bowling teams when you have right-left combinations in, in terms of protecting different bits of the ground. You might – so much of um, what gets dictated in T20 cricket now is you know, an off spinner will come on to bowl maybe to, to two left-handers and um, – you know they'll do it because the long side of the they're spinning the ball to the long side of the boundary kind of thing. So that's these are all the little considerations that, that come into come into it. You can't then bring that same off spinner onto bowl if you've got a right and a left hand player because one of them will be hitting to the shorter side. That's that's the kind of thing that comes into come in comes into it, in, especially in tournaments where you have a lot of games on on the same grounds and you play you end up playing it. Um, on pitches closer to one side and the other. So that's that's the reason you want them. But, yeah, India is showing that it's not that important potentially. It's going to be fascinating to see how it all plays out. Now, Lou, we'll chat after the semifinals and do a little final preview, I reckon. 
and you're about to go and chat to Shane Watson. I'm here with Shane Watson on the Unplayable Podcast, whose new book, Winning the Inner Battle, is out now in all good. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Bookstores, probably all the bad ones as well. It's it's a fantastic book. Um, I really enjoyed reading it, Shane. It's um, probably the first thing worth noting is that um, it's not a typical cricketer's book. It's not a, you know, this happened on this tour and this happened on, on the next tour. It's It's a bit different. Um, what made you want to write it? Um, well, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, the, and the only way you can buy this book is on my website. <laughs> then, oh, I didn't stores. even, I didn't even yeah. check. Okay, let's <laughs> let's let's re-record everything. Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they know. They know um, they'll remember it now. Yeah. Now that they okay, know, sweet. they can't get so, it um, So the, yeah, there's no books. It's just, <laughs> I'm self-publishing it. Um, so the only way you can get it is on shamewatson.au. Shamewatson.au, and you can buy the um, you can buy the paperback. The ebook and the audio book is not far away, right? Because <laughs> I'm self-publishing, it's not far away. <laughs> we can we can record it right now if you like. You just start, if you just want to start reading from um, from chapter one, yeah. just go for it. Yeah, it'd be easier. It would have been easier from the edit anyway. But um, yeah, so that's it's um, yeah. You can only get it on my website, shamewatson.au. Um, but the, the reason, well, the reason why I, I wrote this book is because um. I want this information to get out to everyone. I want everyone to have the chance and opportunity to be able to read this information that I was so fortunate to get educated on in 2015. So I was 34 as after the the T20, uh, sorry, the one day world cup that we won here in Australia. And um, I was going through a tough time performance wise and career wise. Um, and I got introduced to a guy who from the U S mental skills guru from the U S who ended up um, going and spending a few days going through his program and understanding this information. And it just, it was so profound, this information, because it was so easy to understand hmm. this guy, like this guy, Jacques Delaire, Dr. Jacques Delaire knew nothing about cricket, but all he knew is about high performance and about how people's minds work. 
um, good and bad and how to be um, how to educate people on it. So from that time on, I spent two days with him. And I was like, I've got to get this information out to as many people as possible, which I've been doing over the last um, four years. I, I implemented this information over my last four years of playing T20 cricket around the world um, and set up a business coaching, coaching this information. And now um, I've had time to be able to put together a book so it's even more readily, readily available, this information. So yes, it's a, it's a cricket-specific book as around the examples that I, that I give um, and in, in different times in my career and different um, situations in my life where, and career, career where I use this information, good and bad. Um, but outside of that, it's more so it's, a, it's an education book, a mental skills education book, not just your standard um, autobiography or something like that. It's, it's, it's certainly nothing like that. It's, it's there to get this information out to as many people as possible because for me, this, um, this information should be taught in schools, mental skills information should be taught at schools because it's one of the most important skills that we can develop life skills that we can develop for me there's two life really important life skills that we don't get taught at school one is mental skills to understand how to navigate your way around life and how to get the best out of yourself from a performance point of view so you can access all your skills that you've got um, inside of you Um, but also financial literacy that's not like my strength i've had to educate myself on that but there's Mm. a few people out there who are doing that very well Um, the barefoot investor scott papers doing an amazing job with that to dumb it down so people can understand and educate themselves but for me those two things are the most important life skills and mental skills what i've been educated on it's what i know incredibly well now so that's now the reason the reason why the books the books come out it's a fascinating genesis from it and and you wrote in the book about how meeting will power the the race car driver kind of put you (laughs) onto that i'm really interested in in this initial meeting with this guy Jacques Delaire this yeah. I mean to to think that you had to go all the way to North Carolina and the states to to learn these yeah. lessons I mean what did he make of you what did he know who you were like you did he know anything about cricket uh no he didn't know really anything at all about cricket um all he knew is that well he got introduced um Will Power introduced me to Jacques um after I met um Will Power at the Dally M's it was Dally M's gosh 20 2015 uh, so random. Like I normally, I've never been to the Dalliums before and Will's never, he was only out in Australia for a couple of weeks after he'd um, won the IndyCar, IndyCar um, championship. So it was just a, a random meeting as life happens at times. But then he connected me with Jacques and I had a, co- a conversation with Jacques just over the phone for half an hour. I was like, oh my God, this, this guy, this information is, I've never heard some of this stuff. Like so simple. And I was like, geez, okay, I need to, I've, I've got nothing to lose. I've got nothing to lose. I'm most, I'm most probably going to retire. Well, I'm most probably going to retire because I'm just, I can't access my skills. I, I think that they're gone. Um, and so I had nothing to lose, flew over and just spent, yeah, two days going through as a really, um, a, a really deep um, program that he sort of, see, that, that he, um, that I went through over two days. And I just knew like flying, flying back um, from North Carolina, from Charlotte, I just knew that I, I, I had all the skills now to be able to turn things around, all the mental skills that I never had an understanding. I'd fallen into the right mindsets at, at certain times throughout my career um, through circumstances. And so I knew how to, well, I fell into the right mindset to have some really good performances, but to direct, to understand the control that I had over my mind to direct myself into those performances, certainly um, that never happened because I didn't know that. I didn't know that information. So, um, and from then on, and I just kept like working through and, and, and troubleshooting these, these skills that I had over the next sort of four, four years or so. And, um, and then by coaching this information now, um, coaching this information now just makes me you know, know it inside out as well. So, but this guy was just like a bit of, in a way, a mad scientist. Um, yeah. Shark had been doing it for 45 years, um, developed 
the, the program, um, developed this whole program over 45 years of working with high performance people. Um, he started in F1 and then moved on into motor, motorsport and special forces and, um, and that sort of thing. So he's distilled the program down and the information down into a really easy to understand way. Um, and again, he knew nothing about cricket, which was a great thing because it was just the information for me to then apply it to, into, into cricket was just so simple and so powerful. So yeah. um, I'm so grateful that I have this opportunity to be able to um, spread the word on um, this powerful information that Jacques, Jacques put together over um, a lot of years. I imagine one of the things that would have been relatable for him in terms of what you were at the point of, of your career that you were going to him was, you know, around around death and around um, around tragedy. And, and we know Phil Hughes had, um, that it had a big impact on you and a lot of other players, Shane. Um, was that as a starting point? I mean, A, I mean, how big was that in terms of changing your, your mental outlook on the game? And, and B, how did, how did he kind of help you help you deal with that part of it? Yeah, well, that was where my mindset shifted significant. Well, in a in a huge way after that that tragic event of um, of Phil Hughes, and it's just because you know for the for, for me the innocence of cricket was taken away from mm. just thinking that you could you know, you're facing a fast bowler and you could get hurt, but never never in the you know ever did you ever um, contemplate uh, that event happening. So, um, and the, I suppose the the great thing about um, going and um, working with Shark is, you know, what he'd been working with people who had been um, through similar experiences in, in a different sort of, whether it's um, race, race um, motorsport, whether that's special forces, fighter pilots, where um, the, the fear for some people has, have, has arisen and just making yourself, making you understand how to be able to overcome, overcome that fear to be able to not allow that fear to affect your performances, to bring the best, all the skills that you have. So um, it was certainly a, um, the information that was, was just so, so powerful to be able to sort of just make me understand how I can still, um, or just to be able to overcome from a performance perspective, overcome that fear that was um, so, so raw um, still to, to be able to not let it affect my performances, um, you know, from then on. And then from out of that, I mean, the, one of the things I really took out of the book was the basically the forty-five minute routine that you developed mm. in those back three or four years of your career, Shane. Like how um, maybe explain to the listeners what what that routine consisted of and and how transformative it was. Yeah, so that forty-five um, minute uh, like preparation routine that that I um, that I refined over over my whole career, but then when I really I was working through and understood this information, then it was very, very specific. So um, one, one thing that I always did was before, before I knew this information was I, I worried a lot and I thought a lot about everything was going on. So if, um, for example, um, before a, a test match or in the lead up to a test match, three days out, I'd be thinking about who I was coming up against. Um, what, even when I was going, walking down the road to, to go for lunch or something like that, I'd be thinking about, um, facing Jimmy Anderson or Stuart Broad or this game's coming up. Oh, I really need to score runs. Um, it's a big time. It's a big Ashes series. And I was thinking about it all the time. Even when I was trying not to think about it, I was. Um, and then I, because of, because of that, I used to burn myself out mentally um, from a mental energy point of view. And I didn't know it. I didn't know that I was doing that, but just it, human nature, that's what I was, um, I was processing. So when I knew this, once I knew this information, I just always made sure that I set aside 45 minutes in the lead up to going to a game to be able to know that that was the time where I did work through 
my scenario, my scenarios, the technical, the mental checklist, look over um, footage of me when I was, I was playing at my best. So just to reinforce, reinforce the, my mindset when I was at my best and, and watching footage of it, but also my technical best. So working through that. Um, and once I stepped through those, through the technical and mental um, checklist and watching uh, video footage of myself, then I would meditate. So the meditation was a way to be able to try and regenerate as much mental energy as um, as I could that I'd burnt in the lead up whether um, through that whole day because I was only really only applied this in T20 cricket because um, I'd retired from every other form or got dropped. <laughs> so so I was only doing it in T20 cricket. But uh, that, then 20 minutes of meditation would regenerate as much mental energy as I could, and then I'd go to, and then I'd walk down to go to the bus. So. That was my that was my um, routine. But setting aside those forty five minutes, I put it in a box. That time into a box. So as soon as a thought would come up around, it, like before that forty five minutes, as soon as a thought came up around, oh, I could be facing this, or this is the big. It's a big game. It's a IPL final. I'd just catch the, that thought and just redirect it to. I know I've got forty five minutes set aside, and I'll think about that then. And just think about something else, do something else. And for me, my default, any time I started to think about something I shouldn't have, was just think about a song. So that mm-hmm. was my easy default to be able to just go, you know what, put my mind on neutral so I wasn't overthinking any situation. And the easiest way for me to do that was just putting a song in my head. I really like the example that you, I think you said the first time you used um, having a song in your head was during that innings, uh, the 100 you made against India at the mm. SCG, um, not too long after that. Um, yeah. yeah. How did that process kind of play out with that innings? Yeah. So, um, so that was end of, well, start of February, I think end of January, start of, um, start of February, that, that game. So I had the whole big bash really of, of just refining that information that I'd been, that I'd been taught because I, I went and. I went and uh, saw Jacques at the end of September or start of October um, in 2015, and then that was that was in 2016 in um, Feb that that game against India. So I'd refined the process throughout the Big Bash around in between balls, um, just putting like jamming a song into my head just to make sure my mind was on neutral. Again, in the lead up to the game, that was my default to make sure that I wasn't overthinking anything, and and that was the that was just such a um, that was an amazing time because it was the first time again where I'd had on the international stage, I'd had a performance where I was in control of my thoughts and I was really very deliberate on what I was thinking as in, in between balls, I was just putting a song in my head, trusting what I felt because I was captain for that game as well and, and batting and bowling. Um, so I was very, very, very um, diligent and disciplined around what my thoughts were. So when I was captaining, not not overthinking what a bowling change or a fielding change is just trusting what I felt. It's tapping into my unconscious mind to mm. trust my gut feel. So and that's where the power in those that decision making is just so so incredible and it's so um, efficient mental energy wise, but also it's so accurate. So I was trusting that. And then again when I was batting, I was just trusting what I felt, the right matchup, the right conditions. Um, in between balls again, I was just putting my mind on neutral and and it's just one of those days, yes, things fell my way as well. I got a couple of free hits from Jasper Boomer early on my innings to get meetings going as well. Just certainly um, the B factors went went my way through that game as well. But because I was just so deliberate in everything that I did technically, but also then mentally, to be able to – the satisfaction to know that all that work that I'd done over the previous three months, around about three months of working through this information and applying it, applying it correctly was just so, so satisfying. 
I watched the highlights back of that innings uh, this morning, actually, and just you know, watching it with the with the added context of knowing you know what you were kind of doing. I, I have mm. um, I have one question. What was the song? Oh yeah, oh, look, I can never remember the song. <laughs> That's the one thing because the song, the songs that I, the songs that I pick up, uh, normally the songs that I might have been listening to before, like before the game. So I'd always yeah. listen to music as I was on the bus um, or driving to the game. But then it could be the song that's on at the ground as well. Do you know what I mean? So, so if if there's a song that's on the ground on the ground that's a little bit catchy and it's just there, that's I'll just jam that song in. Yeah, so that's right. the one thing that I don't know exactly what song it is. It's more so whichever one's available to me right at that moment, whether it's one around the ground or one that's I've been listening to in the past that I'll just I jam it in there. That's the one thing that I'm just I in I just force into my mind no matter what because that's when I know my mind's on on neutral and then I'm accessing my all my my instincts, my gut feel, my unconscious sort of mind decision making because my mind's on neutral. It's interesting. I, I remember David Warner during the World Cup in 2019. He actually batted with with headphones in, like little, you know, like the Apple earphones in, mm. and he was like listening to Lewis Capaldi or, or something like that. Yeah. Like I, I wonder if yeah. that's him kind of tapping into the the same thing and almost forcing the the song into his head. Well, that's that's right. I know. Um, yeah, Michael Clark, Michael Clark was certainly certainly did that. He always had his earphones on, um, waiting to bat in a test match. And then you could, I knew he always had a song in his head. I didn't know why he did it. It obviously worked amazingly well. Mm. He was able to bat for such long periods of time. Um, Glenn McGrath did it did it as well. I remember him telling me that he did it again, but I just didn't ask. Whether I didn't ask why, I just I just or well, they didn't know exactly why they did it. it just they did it and it worked and it really helped them. Um, but. Yeah, Dave Warner. I didn't. I didn't know that about him. But that was. That's obviously what. That's certainly one way of being able to just make sure that you've just you're tuning out to the world around you and just tuning into um, your mind on default to to make your mind chilling until you need to be finally focused on watching that ball coming out. It's interesting you, you talk there about Glenn McGrath. One of the other little bits from from the book about um, I remember you, you you said that you saw Brett Lee watching highlights of himself on the on the team bus, and you thought you know get a load of this bloke like he's he's watching his own highlights, and yeah. then you you actually realise later the benefit of it. Yeah, that's it. You, uh, Brett Lee used to be the the butt of a lot of um, a lot of jokes on the bus. Like people used to take the piss out of him quite a bit because he was just like it. It seemed very self indulgent at the time. It is yeah. like, oh, good on you, mate. Like, because obviously his bowl, like, being his bowl, won 60Ks and stumps flying and seeing the ball, like, bounces and just. <laughs> so it seemed very self indulgent at the time. And people used to take the piss out of it. And I was certainly one of those as well. Being as one of my, Brett Lee's one of my you know, best mates in the world. So it was all done in, um, in the right spirit. But, and then I asked him now, after knowing this information, the reason why he did it, and that was to build his confidence up, to be able to tap into the best version of him by watching the, that footage of him bowling his best. That's just what then he took into the game, that super version of himself. Um, whereas everyone else, like I think some other guys might have been watching footage of themselves, I think, to reinforce their good habits or even their, their mindset that they needed. But it's, uh, no one ever ever talked about it. They certainly didn't do it on the team bus <laughs> like, Brett, like, Brett, like Brett Lee did. But he knew what was going on and it, it, certainly, it certainly worked for him. And it was a method, um, a method, yeah, it was a method that worked really, really well for him. But, you know, no one really knew why he did it. But he took, he took, he just kept taking it on because he knew it worked. Yeah, yeah, no, it certainly worked. Um, one of the other things you, you touched on was the the idea of that 
almost being like a finite amount of mental energy that you've got yeah. and you kind of list it out. I mean, like social media has been a been a big one in terms of what, um, you know, a, a well-documented distraction for players. One of the ones mm. that surprised me a bit was um, video games and, and you suggested mm. that the video games are, are potentially more of an issue in terms of burning players' mental energy before matches than than anyone else. I've, I've kind of heard talk about that. Yeah, why do you think that? Yeah, well... Just the the research is the research is very strong around um, the overstimulation that that computer games do create in the in the mind in the brain, um, and the overstimulation means that um, it can take for especially for for growing minds in particular the overstimulation of computer games can take a, a number of days for your your brain to be able to regenerate that, that mental energy because of just being so overstimulated with all those different things that are going on, um, and that's just one thing that. Um, I've seen a lot when I was playing. A lot of a lot of um, guys used to um, just burn time and, and make time go by on tour by playing playing computer games and, and gaming. Um, and it's certainly become even more prevalent now because of the online gaming um, mm. aspect, where you can tune in, you can play, you know, play against and play with your mates from all, all around the world. Um, and it's certainly a big a big culture in cricket um, and in around the the T Twenty leagues that I played as well. Um, and the, obviously for some it's a, it, it's a career. Like some some are professional gamers. They get paid to to game inside or outside of playing cricket. So but so that's great. But they've just everyone's got to be very very aware of how much that overstimulation of your mind by gaming and gaming late into the night and then trying to sleep after it as well. We everyone knows when you when you're gaming or whether you're like watching, even watching YouTube or scrolling through social media, then when you try to go to sleep after that, if it's later in night, it's hard for your mind to be able to switch off and you don't quality of sleep. Hmm. Most of the time is not great. So you're not giving your, your, your body a chance to be able to regenerate that mental energy alone. So, um, so I just, people need to be very, very diligent and careful about how they use their, how they use their mental energy. And if they really want to be as good a cricketer as they possibly can, then just you game in that, do it. Of course, it, certainly never saying not to do something, but just be wise around when you when you do it and then understanding that if you do it, then you need, if you want to be the best that you possibly can be and you've got all the control over your mind and the mental energy to be able to react to the best of your ability, execute your skills, all that muscle memory that you're trying to tap into, that if, you, if your mental energy is um, depleted, then your ability to be able to execute your skill and and your decision making is significantly reduced. So, I suppose in the end, it's a choice. And I I knew that I was I wanted to be the best cricketer I wanted to be. I hated that feeling of it's a shocking feeling knowing that you didn't perform how you wanted to. You let your team down. So I was willing to do whatever I needed to to be able to sacrifice whatever I needed to to give myself the best chance of, of performing um, in every game. Hmm. I imagine for a lot of those guys who are really into it, like it's a, it's a competitive thing as well, right? Like it's hard for, um, and I imagine, you know, there's probably times where, where you get a little bit where, you, you know, you're not playing anymore and that competitive thing just, you know, it's, you're not getting that same outlet. Like do you, yeah. do you have some sympathy? Are, are there alternative ways that the guys can kind of, um, you know, exercise that competitive instinct, I suppose? Oh, there's certainly plenty of other ways. There's other things you can, you can do for sure. Um, there's other um, yeah pastimes that you, that you can do that still um, give you that um, give you that competitive experience that, that everyone everyone enjoys for sure and, and I'm I'm certainly not here to 
just say don't 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 game. I'm certainly mm. not saying that. It's more so just be aware of how much you do game because the overstimulation, the awareness that the overstimulation on your brain can mean that you have torched a lot of your mental energy in the lead up to a game that you are playing. It's just the awareness around it. So then um, you you might just be more selective when you do it, more selective the time and when you do it and how long you do it for. Um, but then also if you do do it, then make sure you're doing things to be able to replenish that mental energy, whether that's through meditation, which is one powerful way, but also sleep sleeps, you know, the other way to be able to regenerate that mental energy. If you can, if you can get a decent <laughs> night's sleep after it. <laughs> yeah. And one of the other bits that you're kind of talking about there is that tapping into your unconscious mind. And, and I found that a really um, illuminating part of the book, Shane. And um, I found it an interesting counterpoint, I suppose, in terms of, um, T20 cricket is so much, you know, we hear about matchups and data and, and analytics. And one of the things that you're kind of actually advocating for is potentially, um, you know, switching off that a little bit and actually kind of going, my gut feel is is more important and more valuable to me than, than a lot of that other stuff. How do, you, how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, well, the most important thing is your preparation. So in your preparation, it's very important to be able to understand what the analytics are and, mm. and go through the data enough. So you've, got, you've put that into your internal computer, into your unconscious mind, so you know that you've got that information there. Um, so, then, so then when you go into the game, then it is just trusting what you feel, which is it is um, tapping into your gut feel is your unconscious mind, just processing all of your experiences that you've ever had throughout your career. But then also taking into consideration that information that you've just recently put into your mind around around the data, mm. um, and then and then trusting what you feel on like at the like on the field. So, for example, if there was a matchup for me that statistically and the data was really good, if I just even before I face one ball, I'm going okay, this is my matchup. I'm going no matter what the the data says it. Every time I've played this guy, um, I can definitely I can take him down, um, take this bowler down. But if I don't give myself one ball to go, okay, how is it today? What's he doing today? Is, there, is he bowling slightly different, differently to what he does normally? Is the ball reacting differently off the wicket than it normally does? But if I just don't even take into those, those um, factors into consideration and go, no, nah, the data says this, that's when it's high risk. You've got more chance of being exposed and getting out. So that's where it's great to be able to put that information, that data into your internal computer but then it is trusting what you feel out in the middle to be able to make the right decisions. And that's where if you don't get that balance right, that's where the data can just take over and people just do things. It's high risk hmm. instead of actually you, this is what, this is what it feels right is the right thing to do right now, whether it's a right ball to bowl right now or the right field placement or the right bowling change right now, instead of just, only taking the data as gospel and and not allowing your understanding and your intuition of the game of cricket through all your experiences, you're not allowing that to come through. Hmm. One of the one of the other interesting bits, Shane, that, that stood out for me was um, how big an impact the IPL had on your career, and, and particularly around the well, not just around the back end of your career. I mean, you you kind of talk about it being influential the whole way through, and I think it's it's interesting, you know, given Australia got knocked out of a World Cup over the weekend, and you know, there's always talk about how the IPL fits in with international schedules. Maybe just for, for your own career, why was why was the the, the IPL so transformative for for you? I suppose. Well, the IPL was so transformative for me because um, in 2008, I was on the like the Australian cricket scrap heap in a way because I'd been injured on and off for 
gosh, like five, oh, not five, like three years in particular. And it got to a stage and I fully get it that um, I just hadn't been fit for long enough. So people were getting frust- frustrated. Um, I, was perf- I was performing pretty well, but then I'd get injured. So, um, yeah, I, I, un- I understand that my, my opportunities were, were starting to, um, well, it was starting not to be there. And then the IPL came along um, and fortunately um, Shane Warne was at the Rajasthan Royals, was captain coach of the Rajasthan Royals, and he was always an incredible supporter of of me, um, even with my time that I went and played and replaced him at Hampshire to be able to help um, evolve my cricket and get um, improve my cricket. So to be able to have him looking after me and been able to play the whole IPL as well, because there was a test series on at that time. So there was a West Indies test series in 2008 where the most the, the high-profile Aussie players, they played like two or three games of the IPL and then had to come home to Brisbane to have a two-week camp and then go to the West Indies to play the test series. Whereas because I wasn't in the test squad, because I'd been dropped and fair enough, because I was injured on and off, um, then I was able to play the whole IPL. And it was a perfect storm for me because physically I was as I was as good as I'd ever been because it had been a year process of rebuilding my body um, thanks to a, um, Victor Popov who was up in Brisbane. And then I'd had to I'd worked really hard on my power hitting over the previous sort of four years because of where I was batting in one day cricket um, for Australia, batting at number seven and eight. So it was a it was a it was a perfect storm, and then having Shane Warne guide me and support me and look after me and give me opportunities, it was just it was meant to be. So that was a time where I was able to play the whole tournament. It was a world class tournament. So and then my cricket just sort of took off from there. Um, but the balance is now, and this is what I, I really struggle to get my head around is I knew when I played the IPL, and so from that time onwards, yes, I wasn't I got picked. Um, for the one day for the one day series in the West Indies, straight after that, straight on the back of um, the my IPL or the first IPL. From then on, I played international cricket just about all the way through. And I knew though, if I played the IPL, then I could not, I absolutely could not get rested for any Australian games. And Ricky was my captain as as well, and he he looked after me playing wise. But it was always, if I play the IPL, then I've got I have to play. The only, I have to play every game for Australia. And the only game that I ever really got rested for was a Perth game, a one day where I had to fly back and forth pretty quickly and I rested for that. But that was it. And that's where I struggle to get my head around how things have shifted significantly for the current current generation of players who play the IPL, but then they're able to take like a couple of tours off to freshen up for Australia. That's the thing that's just so foreign to me because I know – well, I, I know exactly what was going through. It wasn't just me. Other people were in the same boat who played the IPL and just knew that, you know what, if you, if you burn yourself out, the thing where you gotta, you've got to sacrifice is the IPL because international career playing for your country is the number one. And IPL is an amazing experience and an amazing opportunity, but it, it comes second to playing for your country. So that's, that's where it's, it's foreign to me and I struggle to get my head around exactly the situation right now. And that's changing quickly, right? With the the extra power that IPL teams are having, and that they're they're talking about buying. Well, they're not talking about it. They've they've got teams in in other T Twenty leagues around the world. Well, I mean, playing devil's advocate, some of these guys might say that, you know, me going playing in the IPL, I'm going to get more out of that than a than a five game T Twenty series against Bangladesh or against West Indies. Or I'm just picking those those teams out of nowhere. What what would you um you know what would you say to that? Oh, look, I get that, and in the end, it's an individual call. 
it's an individual's call to go, okay, what, what do I want to do? Do I want to play and commit to playing um, cricket for my, for my country and seeing what those opportunities are, maybe, you know, whether they're me playing all the time or whether I'm sort of in and out, but I need to, I, I want to commit to playing for my country for as long as I possibly can. But there's obviously another decision to go, okay, well, if I do play, if everything does go really well and I do perform and play cricket for Australia, then I'm going to be playing all year round if I'm playing all three formats. So, and then the IPL, that's really, that is the only window where I have time off. So I've just got to, that's a decision I have to make, whether I do do that and know that I'm going to be burnt out and I'm going to have to manage that as well as I can, or there's going to be opportunities that are, that are fast approaching where a player makes the decision to say, you know, I'm not going to play international cricket, whether they're at the, at the back end of their career or whether they're starting and go, you know what, I don't want to be, it's an, it'd be an amazing opportunity to be able to play cricket for my, for my country, but I just want to be able to play nine months of the year or six months of the year, whatever it is, get paid this amount of money and then do some other things, whether it's training preparation, whether it's actually doing stuff outside of cricket to upskill myself for the next phase of my life after my cricket finishes. Um, and that's, and that's the decisions that are going to be, have to made be made quite, quite soon. Cause that's, <laughs> that situation's very fast approaching. That's come up. It's been coming for a while and now it's, it's right in everyone's faces. So the individual in the end just has to, make make a make a call and make a decision on what they want to do but again i'll keep going back to it i I still can't get my head around how you can play the ipl and then and then rest for tours up yeah i can't get my head around that anyway maybe i'm I'm old school in that way i suppose yeah yeah no and it's a fascinating discussion around um someone i want to ask you about cameron green in particular right i Mm. mean that's a guy who's whose star is on the rise in in all three formats and we've we've gotten a little bit of a taste of it in in T20 cricket just recently, I've got no doubt, I'm not sure about you, Shane, that he's going to be in, in high demand when the next IPL auction rolls around, um, you know, given how we went in, in, in India earlier this year. I mean, as a guy who went through a lot of the same things, a lot of the same expectations uh, as a young all-rounder, what would you advise him to do? Well, the one, the one thing that I, I just – I just, I just love watching him play. Um, he's all the all the skills the the skills that he's equipped with at such a young age is just is isn't is just it, it blows me away because I I know where I was at at my career at that stage um, at his age and it just it's it's phenomenal to see what he's able to do and the understanding that he has of his game is just and that's across across all formats is something that's. It's 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 rare. It doesn't, someone like him doesn't come along very often at all in the like in the history of the game. So, mm. um, so now with the opportunities that are come going to come up with the IPL, again, it's it's just going to be a decision that he's going to have to make. It's understanding if I do play the IPL, and obviously he's going to be incredibly well rewarded for it because of his skill that he's he's got and the um, the match winning ability that he has across the board. Then IPL teams are going to you know be jumping all over or falling all over themselves to be able to get him. But with that, it means that he's going to be playing all cricket all year round. And to be able to manage that even from a body point of view, because he's still young, that's going to be that's going to be his biggest challenge. And then so how does he how does he manage that? So I at the moment it looks like he it's from afar, he's managing it very well and Cricket Australia managing him very well, the way they're using him when they bowl him, when they don't bowl him. But that'll that'll certainly crank up if he goes and plays the IPL because um 
he'll be expected to bowl most. Of, be expected to bowl all the time. Um, so in the end, that'll just be a decision that um, he's going to have to he's going to have to make. But there's certainly a hybrid there for someone like him. There's a hybrid there whether he plays the IPL, whether he plays part of the IPL. There's there's definitely a hybrid there because it's a collective management of of someone like Cameron Green. It's a collective management of him, whether that's with the IPL team and Cricket Australia, to work through to be able to just allow this guy to be the best that he can be and manage him as well as we can because in in time his body will get more more resilient um, the more he just continues body gets used to doing what it's what he wants it to do um, but it needs to be a yeah a collective management to, if he goes to play the IPL to to look after him because he's just as I said a player a player like him with the skills that he has they don't come along very often one of the other things he can do is read Shane Watson's book, which is called <laughs> "Winning the Inner Battle." I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure he's across it. I'm, I think the, I think the young players are better these days, aren't they? I'm about to let you go, Shane, but maybe one more on just young players in terms of how they, um, how they access some of this information that you're talking about. I mean, when you were 16, 17, coming through, you spelt it out that it was, um, that it wasn't really there. Do, do you think a, a guy like Green and, and others? Uh, are accessing um, that information at an earlier age. Oh, that, but, but what I'm hearing, though, certainly there's there are people out there um, who are helping educate these these younger these young cricketers to with this information. Um, but it's more so the. But what I'm hearing, it's more so the ones who are very. Um, they are looking to push the limits of how good they can be, um, and it's, mm-hmm. so it's not just readily it's not readily available. And also, you've got to be fortunate enough to be able to be connected with the right person who's got that information who can help um who can help educate that you know that individual so and again that's why uh, the reason why this I've released this book is so this information is readily available for every for everyone you don't have to be very lucky to be in the pathway where you get access to this one person in particular who has got this mental skills information that can just help you unlock the the best version of you every time you step out um it's not this information is not ready readily available and hasn't been and that's um what i was so obsessed with cricket and i still absolutely love the game but as a 16 17 year old i just wanted to do what everything that i possibly could to be the best cricketer i could be which and i did that i was pushing limits technically physically but there was never any like really good sound mental skills information where i could just start implementing those mental skills and just bringing all those three components together at a younger age. Um, so, you know, that's the whole whole genesis of the reason why this book's out there to make it more readily available. So, um, and the good thing with a book, you can do it in your own privacy. I know that the when you, sometimes if you see people reading a mental skills book, a lot the sort of, the unconscious bias is, oh, geez, okay, you might have a few, <laughs> might have a few issues. <laughs> a few demons going on there. A few yeah. demons going on. Yeah. So the good thing about a book, you can do it in your own privacy. <laughs> and then once you understand the information, then you can just then, – then you can come and talk about it because you've got your arm with the information that you need to be able to work through it. I think they say Fifty Shades of Grey was particularly popular, popular on, um, on Kindle. Um, over the, over the last few years, because of uh, maybe the, some of those same same reasons, it's not winning the inner battle isn't quite uh, isn't quite that same genre, but it's a it's a fantastic read. No, nonetheless, you know how to get it now. Shane Watson's told you. Shane Watson is the name of the author. Uh, go to his website to to get the book. Shane, thanks thanks very much for your time, mate. Pleasure, Louis. It's great to chat to you, mate. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.